This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. To hear ad-free versions of our episodes published several days before their general release, subscribe to They Walk Among Us Plus. Head to patreon.com forward slash they walk among us or search for they walk among us on Apple Podcasts to learn more. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. After Peter Tobin was convicted of murdering Angelica Kluke and concealing her body under a church floor in 2006, investigators began looking into his murky past and uncovered links to numerous other unsolved crimes. Through inquiries by Operation Anagram, the task force established to investigate Tobin's history Extraordinary developments were made in cases that had remained unsolved for over 15 years. Detectives leading the search for a missing Falkirk teenager have now admitted they fear the worst. Today, over 100 officers involved in the Joint Force inquiry into Vicky's disappearance continued their inch-by-inch search of the Bathgate area. At the same time, house-to-house inquiries were carrying on. It's awful. It's just, it's, it's like it's unreal, really. Can't believe it's happening. Awful, that poor girl, poor baby, been buried out there all those years. You know, we've just been carrying on, you know, not knowing. It's just awful. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 58 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 7, Episode 57 for Part 1 of this two-part case. Vicky Hamilton was born in Falkirk, Scotland in 1975. She was the second daughter born to Jeanette and Michael Hamilton, who lived in the Scottish village of Reading. Vicky attended Westcourter Primary, where she developed a love of reading that would last well into her teens. There were four years between Vicky and her older sister Sharon, but they shared a close bond. When Vicky was nine years old, the family grew. Twins Lee and Lindsay were born. Jeanette and Michael Hamilton would go their separate ways, but the children had an extended support network as family members and loved ones lived close by. 
Soon after, Vicky enrolled at Graham High School in Falkirk. A 17-year-old sister, Sharon, decided to move 20 miles away to Livingston to live with her boyfriend. For the next couple of years, the sisters only saw each other when Sharon made the bus journey home. But in February 1991, Sharon asked Vicky to come and spend the weekend with her in Livingston. Vicky eagerly agreed. Aside from mucking out the stables where she rode horses and hanging around outside the chip shop with her friends, she rarely got a break away from her home and school life. Vicky was a typical teenager. Her biggest concerns were impressing her friends and keeping up with the latest music. However, she was smart and bubbly and quickly won people over with her sharp wit. On February 8th, 1991, Vicky said goodbye to her mother and twin siblings and boarded the bus to Livingston. She was looking forward to a weekend away. After Vicky arrived at Sharon's flat, the sisters wasted no time catching up on each other's lives. They were past the age of bickering siblings and were simply content to sit and chat, making up for lost time. The following day, they went shopping in the town centre and then went out to a local pub for some drinks and a dance, enjoying their time together before Vicky planned to return home the next evening. Sunday, February 10th, was a cold and dark day. Snow had blanketed the ground outside Sharon's flat, and she was not sure the buses would even be running due to the weather. Vicky was scheduled to get the bus to Bathgate at 5pm, and then catch the 6.50 bus back to Falkirk. After failing to get in touch with her father or uncle for a lift home, Vicky insisted she would be fine getting the bus, but she was anxious about having to transfer in Bathgate. Sharon reminded Vicky that the bus stop for Falkirk was just down the street from the last stop in Bathgate. When the bus arrived, a protective Sharon even asked the driver to tell Vicky when it was her stop. Vicky and Sharon hugged each other, and Vicky told her big sister that she couldn't wait to come back for another stay the following weekend. Sharon waved as the bus drove off, before she turned away and walked the short distance back to her flat. Vicky's mother Jeanette had taken some persuading to allow her 15-year-old to travel to Livingston alone for the weekend. Vicky had pleaded with her until she gave in. Jeanette watched the clock that Sunday evening, waiting for her daughter to walk in through the door. But as the hours passed, she became increasingly worried. Jeanette did not have a home phone and neither did Sharon, so Jeanette asked her partner to go to the bus station to wait for Vicky. When the last bus arrived without Vicky on board, Jeanette called the police. Vicky had boarded the 5pm bus to Bathgate at the stop outside Sharon's flat, wearing blue jeans, a red Le Shark t-shirt, a grey jumper, a black jacket and hush puppy's shoes. Over her shoulder, she carried a black and green sports holdall with her belongings that she had brought with her for the weekend. Vicky was described as being five feet five inches tall with a slim build. She had brown eyes and a chin-length bob hairstyle that she had dyed black. The driver recalled that Vicky disembarked the bus at the depot on Whitburn Road in Bathgate just after 5.20pm. As she got off, she asked the bus driver where she would get the bus to Falkirk 
and he told her where to go. Dickie had over an hour to pass in Bathgate. It was about dinner time, so she made her way to Valenti's Fish and Chicken Bar on George Place, where she bought some chips. Before leaving the shop, Vicky asked the woman behind the counter about the bus to Falkirk, which showed just how anxious she was. She did not want to miss it. Vicky was next seen sitting on a bench beside a phone box on Steel Yard Square in the centre of Bathgate at around 5.45pm. Ten minutes later, she was gone. No one had boarded the bus to Falkirk from Bathgate that night. As the days passed without any sign of the missing 15-year-old, her mother Jeanette became consumed with worry and refused to leave the house in case Vicky arrived home. She was a happy wee girl. I mean, she, had, she was getting on well at school. I mean, she was looking forward to, to coming home and to go back to up and see Sharon the following Saturday. And, I mean, she's sensible. I just pray to God that she hasn't been abducted and that that she's safe. I'm starting, I'm starting to feel the worst now as each day goes past. I just pray that, to God that she's safe and that somebody, somebody can recognise and get in contact with the local police. Apart from that, I just... Uh, it's just terrible. A massive inquiry was launched between the Lothian and Borders Police and the Central Scotland Police Force, with over 100 officers assigned to search for Vicky. The seven-mile route between Bathgate and Falkirk was scoured along with waterways, fields and ditches. Divers from an underwater search unit braved freezing conditions to prepare to hunt the length of the burn which encircles the town while uniformed men checked disused buildings and even the boot space of brand new cars. The fact that she's not been seen has caused us to mount a fairly intensive search, both here and in Stirlingshire, and as you've seen today already, we have a large number of officers engaged in this search. And how hopeful are you of a positive and happy end to, to the search? I am obviously very hopeful that that will be the case, but I am also concerned at this moment in time that we've had no sightings or information from her or anyone who knows her. In the second week of the search, Detective Superintendent George Ritchie told the Daily Record. In most cases involving the disappearance of a girl of 15, you get a positive sighting by a friend, perhaps a phone call, or even a wee note sent home to say everything is all right. Here we have nothing. There is no reason we know of for the girl to go missing. She intended going home but did not arrive there. A lassie like this can't disappear for two weeks without surfacing. Hopefully she is not dead, but as time goes on we are getting increasingly worried. We have got to go along with the assumption she is dead, and consequently we are looking for a body. Ten days after she vanished, Vicky Hamilton's purse would be found near St Andrew's bus station in Edinburgh on February 20th. It was found in a gutter by someone walking through St Andrew's Square and handed in at a police station. Vicky's purse contained her national insurance card and the receipt for her bus ticket to Bathgate. Initially, the purse was not connected to Vicky's missing persons inquiry, but instead a letter was sent to her mother's home addressed to Vicky to inform her the purse had been handed in at the station. After it was passed to the task force working on Vicky's case, they concluded that it had likely been dumped in the area rather than dropped by accident. It had been raining for days but the purse and contents were dry. 
Vicky's sister could not understand what happened. She was um, all happy about coming. She wanted to come up next again weekend. Um, when I put her on the bus, I mean, she had a smile on her face. And she said goodbye to me, goodbye to Scott. And she was happy. I mean, I had the intentions that she was coming home. She was definitely coming home that night. I want my little sister back where she should belong. She should be back here with my mum. Almost a week later, a reconstruction of Vicky's movements was conducted by the police in the hopes of jogging someone's memory. And there was also a nationwide appeal on Crime Watch. However, unfortunately, there was very little information received as a result. To support her mother, Vicky's sister Sharon moved back home to Reading. The disappearance took an immeasurable toll on Jeanette. Sadly, two years later, she would die, never knowing what happened to her second child. Jeanette's untimely death meant 21-year-old Sharon stepped forward to raise her eight-year-old siblings. Vicky Hamilton's missing person case was one of the largest Scotland had ever seen. Over 6,000 people were questioned, and as part of a national missing persons helpline campaign, Vicky's image was printed on 75,000 milk cartons. But despite the hundreds of officers involved in the inquiry, it remained unsolved for 16 years. The investigators working on Operation Anagram, tracing Peter Tobin's movements across the UK before he murdered Angelica Kluke in 2006, discovered that Tobin had lived in Bathgate at the time of Vicky Hamilton's disappearance. Lothian and Borders cold case review manager Bert Swanson had begun reinvestigating Vicky's case in October under what became known as Operation Mahogany. The only evidence ever found in the case was Vicky's purse, so utilising the advancements in forensic technology since 1991, the purse was sent for analysis to determine if any other fingerprints or DNA could be identified. The results came back with a DNA profile genetically similar to Tobin's, but it was not an exact match. So the investigators obtained a sample from Tobin's son, Daniel, who was three years old in 1991. It was an exact match, meaning Tobin's young son had handled Vicky's purse at the time of her disappearance, and the police knew that Tobin had his son with him that weekend. Tobin had been living at 11 Robertson Avenue, just over a mile from where Vicky was last seen in February 1991. After Peter Tobin was sentenced to life in prison in 2007 for Angelica Kluke's murder, the Lothian and Borders Police obtained a search warrant for the three-bed Bathgate property and began looking through the house on June 4th. Specialists with radar equipment were brought in to identify areas of interest. They noted an area in the loft. Detective Constable Graham Bowie was tasked with searching the area. At the back of the loft, at the base of the wall behind a rafter, he saw a knife. It was sent for analysis, and less than two weeks later, the investigators learned that a piece of skin had been found on the blade, and DNA proved that it was Vicky Hamilton's. As investigators continued to build a case against Peter Tobin in relation to Vicky Hamilton's disappearance, they discovered that he could be linked to another missing persons case nearly 500 miles away from Bathgate. Bathgate. 
18-year-old Dinah McNichol had just finished her A-level exams and had big plans for the summer of 1991. She was born in Glasgow, but had grown up in the Essex village of Tillingham and was raised by her father, Ian. Dinah's mother had passed away following a road accident when she was young, and in a sense the loss had matured her. Dinah had two older sisters and an older brother, along with a younger sister, so it was unsurprising that being part of a large family made her develop a uniqueness. Dinah stood out, not only because she was kind and clever, caring beyond her years, but because she dressed like the free spirit that she was. When she turned 18, she inherited over £2,500 in compensation for her mother's death, which she planned to save for university. During the summer before she was due to begin the next phase of her education, Dinah travelled around the south of England, visiting family members and attending music festivals with friends. On Saturday, August 3rd, 1991, she got a lift with her old history teacher. Dinah had met him while hitchhiking back from another festival a week earlier. She asked him for a lift as he was heading in the same direction. The festival was held between Liphook and Bramshot and Dinah spent the evening with friends listening to bands. The following afternoon, Dinah's friends began packing up their tent and belongings while Dinah went for a walk around the festival grounds. When she returned to the group, she had a man with her who appeared to be in his twenties. He had short, dark hair and wore a check shirt and jeans. Dinah told her friends that her plans had changed. She was now going to hang around for a while and then go to Portsmouth because she had never been. After saying their goodbyes, Dinah's friends left. Dinah was expected to return home within a few days but she was never seen by her loved ones again. The last time she was with her friends, Dinah was wearing what has been described as hippie-style dark trousers, a red top, a long green corduroy coat and brown boots. She also had a multicoloured headscarf over her hair. Within a matter of weeks, although Dinah was nowhere to be found, her family realised that her inheritance had all gone. Inquiries with the bank revealed that withdrawals had been made in 13 locations in Ramsgate, Brighton, Havant, Portsmouth, Hove and Margate. This was very unlike Dinah, who had spoken at length about not wanting to waste the money she had received from her mother's death. After Dinah's disappearance was reported to the police, her father Ian said, The reality that she might be missing or in trouble really hit me when her exam results arrived, and she passed them all. She was so looking forward to learning how she had got on that I couldn't think of any natural reason for her not to be in touch. She was a good-looking girl, and someone must know something. Extensive searches had been carried out on the festival grounds, but no sign of Dinah emerged. Months passed without any leads, and as with Vicky Hamilton, Dinah McNichol's case was eventually featured on Crime Watch. Host Nick Ross pleaded to Dinah to contact her family, who were waiting by the phone to hear that she was alive and well. Detective Sergeant Derek McNichol explained that they were taking the investigation very seriously. He agreed that the authorities believed a murder had occurred, as there was a strong possibility that something had happened to Dinah, 
However, the officer was quick to stress that as they had not found a body, investigators could not be entirely certain of that theory. After the Crime Watch appeal, surprisingly, the young man Dinah had last been seen with came forward. David Tremlett was 27 years old when he met Dinah at the music festival in August 1991. After a few hours spent walking around the festival grounds in conversation, Dinah had decided she would spend the evening with David and hitchhike home the following day. On Monday, August 5th, they hitched a lift to a petrol station on the A3, where they met a middle-aged man driving an old green car. There was a child seat in the back. The man agreed to give them a lift. David got out of the car along the M25 to make his way to his mother's house in Red Hill, Surrey, and Dinah stayed to continue the journey to her home in Tillingham. Dinah had given David her phone number, and he tried calling her in the days that followed, but she never answered. It was not until he was told about the Crime Watch appeal that he realised why. During the extensive investigation into Peter Tobin's past, it was discovered that he had lived in Margate at the time of Dinah McNichol's disappearance. The major investigation team from Essex Police began reinvestigating Dinah's case in October 2007. Detective Superintendent Tim Wills, who was leading the inquiry, said at the time, The disappearance of Dinah has remained a mystery for too many years, and Essex Police will always look at new opportunities to solve such mysteries. No family should have to live so many years not knowing what has happened to someone they love. And if we can take advantage of science, technology and even changes in allegiances to bring this family answers, then we will. Dinah was an intelligent and vibrant young woman who had her whole life in front of her. I would love to believe that she is out there somewhere living that life but I would not be doing my job if I did not investigate the possibility that someone may have harmed her in some way. Detective Superintendent Wills asked anyone with information to come forward and said that it could be the piece of the jigsaw that they needed to finally solve the case. After Peter Tobin's third wife moved to Portsmouth with their son Daniel in March 1991, Tobin relocated from Bathgate in Scotland to Margate in England. He had agreed to a council house swap with a family who wanted to move to Scotland. After relocating to Margate, Tobin became friendly with his next-door neighbour David Martin. David had been interviewed by the police about Tobin's habits and behaviour. David would provide information that was the missing piece of the jigsaw that Detective Superintendent Will spoke about. Tobin's neighbour described how he had spotted the then 45-year-old over the fence digging a deep hole in his back garden one summer afternoon. David thought it was unusual as Tobin did not seem like the gardening type. David had asked him, What are you digging a hole for? Are you going to Australia? David explained that Tobin told him he was digging a sand pit for his son to play in when he came to visit on the weekends. Tobin's neighbour later recalled, The hole was quite deep. Mr. Tobin was standing approximately chest deep. It was formed like a trench, which I thought was unusual for a sandpit. I thought it was a little strange. It did seem a little on the deep side. The sand never arrived. In fact, the hole was filled in two days later and smoothed over, 
Mr Tobin said the social worker who was in charge of his son said that a sandpit was dangerous, so he had filled it in. In November 2007, the police decided to search Peter Tobin's old house on Irvine Drive in Margate for Dinah's remains. There's going to be a very, very deep search be, um, be taking place in the back garden and within the premises here. Uh, I won't know until that's finished. So all I can say is that there's a chance, and if there's a chance that we'll find something that can move the investigation on, then it's worth doing. After learning about the planned excavation, Dinah's father, Ian, said, Considering the short time the investigation has been reopened, I think this development is absolutely fantastic. Hopefully they will be able to put an end to it either way. 99% of me thinks she has been murdered, but there's just that 1% that doesn't know. I want to die in peace knowing what happened to my daughter. Using specialist ground-penetrating radar, the police began surveying the back garden at the Margate property. They noticed an anomaly close to the shed and began digging. After removing the topsoil, they discovered a layer of cement. They broke through, and in the chalky soil, three feet below the surface, they found two bundles wrapped in plastic bags. Inside the bags were the severed upper and lower half of a body. The victim was wearing a light-coloured jumper and a red Le Shark t-shirt. Her hands were placed across her face. She wore two rings and a bracelet. The lower half of the woman's body was discovered in a kneeling position. Because the remains had been tightly wrapped in multiple layers of plastic, they had been partially preserved. This, combined with the jewellery and clothing found on the body, made it evident that the victim they had discovered was not Dinah McNichol. It was Vicky Hamilton. For Dinah McNichol's father Ian, the agonising wait continued. I'm in the same boat as they were. Um, they have got a result, but we actually hoped uh, the result would be ours because uh, now we're put back again. Vicky Hamilton's remains were examined by Home Office pathologist David Rouse. Dr. Rouse said that despite the level of decomposition, the body was still in what was described as good condition and the organs were well preserved. The pathologist found bruises on Vicky's chest and neck, indicating she had been strangled to death. Dr. Rouse concluded that the knife discovered in Tobin's old house in Bathgate was consistent with the type of instrument used to dismember Vicky's remains. The pathologist also found traces of amitriptyline in Vicky's system, a drug Tobin had been prescribed, but when taken in large doses, could cause a person to lose consciousness. It was a startling development, as Vicky had vanished 480 miles away in Bathgate. This meant that Tobin had transported her severed body to his new home in Margate to conceal her remains. But the search was not over. Investigators still believed that Dinah McNichol's remains were hidden in the garden in Margate. Detective Superintendent Wills said, We came here for Dinah, and we haven't finished yet. There is a chance that she is here. In fairness to the family, we need to fully answer the question as to whether she was here at any time. Essex police continue in earnest for the job we came here to do. I do not intend to leave the house until I am fully satisfied that there are no other human remains. 
after four days of careful excavations, another development would unfold. Short announcement. I can't take questions afterwards, but it is a short announcement. There has been a significant discovery uh, within the last couple of hours. Um, there has been another body discovered. There will be arrangements made this afternoon for a post-mortem locally. Um, and I'm hoping I can give you more of an update later on. Ian McNichol has been informed of this development. The second body was identified as Dinah McNichol. Unlike the first set of remains, Dinah's body was in a state of advanced decomposition, despite being wrapped in plastic bags. Her wrists had been bound behind her back with the distinctive headscarf she had last been seen wearing, and her ankles were tied together using her trousers. She had also been gagged. Dinah was still wearing jewellery which helped to identify her. Despite the level of decomposition, there were traces of amitriptyline found in her system, as well as signs of strangulation. After the body was confirmed as being his daughter's, Ian McNichol told a correspondent for the Express newspaper, It's a relief. It's sad, but it's a conclusion for me. I can smile at the moment because I feel elated that they have found my diner's remains, and I can finally... After 16 years of waiting, lay her to rest. We haven't made any funeral arrangements yet, but she will be cremated and laid to rest with her mother. I applaud Essex and Kent Police and thank them for finding my daughter. It has been a hellish 16 years, but now we have a conclusion. The technology they have now is incredible. They have machines like metal detectors to see if the ground has been disturbed and a DNA bank of the families of missing people. The advances in the past 16 years are just incredible and I'm confident if there is anything else there they will find it. I have already had a heart attack and three minor strokes. I'm 68 years old and haven't got long to live. I can now die in peace. As the police continued to search the property for any other evidence, Peter Tobin was back in court. In July 2007, shortly after the discovery of the knife-bearing Vicky Hamilton's skin, Tobin had been interviewed. He was told that the investigation into Vicky's disappearance had been reopened and the detectives wanted to know where he was on Sunday, February 10th, 1991. Tobin said he probably had his son with him as it was the weekend. He was shown a photograph of Vicky and replied, I don't know her. She doesn't even remind me of anyone, you know. Questioned about the knife found in the loft at his old house in Bathgate, Tobin admitted that it was in fact his knife. When asked why Vicky Hamilton's skin was found on the blade, he said, I can't explain it, sorry. I don't know how it got on it. I have not got a clue. Tobin was questioned if he had any involvement in Vicky's disappearance. And he said, I can see how it's looking, but it has nothing to do with me. I have never met her. That lassie has never been in my house. Tobin was also informed that his son's DNA had been found on Vicky's purse, which had been discovered in Edinburgh over a week after she vanished. He again insisted he had no idea how that could have happened and suggested the then three-year-old could have picked it up in Edinburgh. Tobin was asked if he could assist officers in finding Vicky for her family's sake. He replied, No, sorry, I can't help you. I never met her. Tobin was 
Peter Tobin was charged with Vicky Hamilton's abduction, and two days after her body was found in two pieces beneath the soil of Tobin's old house in Margate, he was charged with Vicky's murder at Linlithgow Sheriff Court. Vicky's father Michael and other family members had followed the police van and shouted at Tobin as he was led into the building. A week later, Tobin was taken to hospital after being attacked by fellow inmates in Sockton Jail in Edinburgh. Once he recovered, Tobin was committed to face trial for Vicky Hamilton's murder. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities maladies, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand, and now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with Scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. The trial began at Dundee High Court in November 2008. Opening the case for the prosecution. 
Solicitor General Frank Mulholland told the court that Peter Tobin had abducted 15-year-old Vicky Hamilton as she waited for the bus in Bathgate in February 1991. It was alleged that Tobin then drugged her, sexually assaulted her, and strangled her before cutting her body into two pieces with the knife that was found in the loft of his former home in Bathgate. Tobin then bound and wrapped the remains in plastic bags before transporting the body almost 500 miles to his new home in Margate a month later. The jury were told that Tobin's son's DNA was found on Vicky's purse, and the prosecution argued Tobin had intentionally misdirected the missing person's investigation by discarding the purse in Edinburgh. They believed that the then three-year-old Daniel had been playing with the purse or putting it near his mouth, meaning that he may have been present around the time Vicky was abducted and killed. In testimony by Detective Constable Alan Bennett from Essex Police, the concealment of Vicky's remains was likened to a Russian doll because they had been wrapped in layers of plastic bags. Vicky's older sister Sharon, one of the last people to see the teenager alive, provided the court with her recollection of taking her sister to the bus stop. Sharon said, We hugged each other. Vicky didn't know where she was going and asked me to repeat and repeat where she was to get the bus and get the next bus. I asked the bus driver to tell my sister where to get off the bus. She was really nervous. That's the last time I ever saw her, and I watched the bus drive away. Sharon also described how she had been asked to identify jewellery found with Vicky's body. She immediately recognised a ring Vicky had borrowed from their mother that weekend. Peter Tobin maintained his plea of innocence and claimed to have an alibi for the night Vicky Hamilton was last seen. He said he was nowhere near Bathgate, but a witness who had lived next to Tobin testified that she had seen him in the town centre at around 10.30pm. As well as testimony from Home Office pathologist Dr Rouse, the court heard from Professor Anthony Basutil, who conducted a second post-mortem on Vicky's remains. Professor Basutil said that the bruising found on Vicky's body was consistent with someone kneeling on her chest as they compressed her airways. There was also evidence that she had tried to protect herself. Despite the defence's arguments, Substantial forensic evidence against Tobin was then presented. His fingerprints were found on the plastic bags Vicky's body had been wrapped in. His DNA was found on her body, indicating he had sexually assaulted her, and her skin was recovered from a knife he owned. After almost a month of legal proceedings... The prosecutor described to the jury how the fate that befell Vicky Hamilton could not be overstated. Quote, To abduct, drug, sexually assault and murder a 15-year-old girl who was doing nothing more than trying to get home to her mother is a crime of unspeakable horror. I suggest it is a barbaric act. The deceit continued by mutilating the body and interring it in a grave in a back garden of a house occupied by him. This, I would suggest, was done to prevent Vicky's family from discovering the awful truth and subjecting them to a life of soul-searching, wondering what if, why. Tobin's defence counsel, Donald Finlay QC argued there was no evidence that Tobin had ever met Vicky and there were gaps in the prosecution's case. 
However, the jury did not agree. And on December 3rd, 2008, Peter Tobin was found guilty of Vicky Hamilton's murder. After noting that no mitigating features had been submitted on his behalf, Judge Lord Emsley told Tobin, any mitigating features would, in any event, have paled into insignificance by comparison with the enormity of your serial offending. This was a vulnerable teenager who needed help on her way home, but instead she fell into your clutches, and you brought her short life to an end in a disgusting and degrading way. No one will ever know what fear and torment Vicky went through before she died, but the agony you caused to her family was made infinitely worse by your calculating and entirely self-interested attempts to conceal and avoid detection for what you had done. Highlighting the highly skilled police and forensic work undertaken to bring Tobin to justice, the judge went on to say, It's hard for me to convey the loathing and revulsion that ordinary people will feel for what you have done. But abducting and killing a child on her way home from a happy weekend with her sister and then desecrating her body must rank among the most evil and horrific acts that any human being could commit. Following the verdict... Vicky's younger sister Lindsay read a statement in which she described how a living nightmare had come to an end, a day they never thought would come. We're hoping we can now move on as a family and start to remember Vicky as the loving sister she was before she was so tragically and cruelly taken from us. (laughs) Vicky's abduction also robbed us of our mum Jeanette, who never came to terms with the the fact that Vicky never came home that night and who died of a broken heart two years later, never knowing what happened to her daughter. We take comfort in the knowledge that Mum and Vicky have been looking over us and giving us the strength needed to cope during these difficult times. Lindsay went on to say, We would also like to take the opportunity to offer our condolences to the family and friends of Angelica Kluke. They are in our thoughts today as it was only after her death that we eventually found out what happened to our sister. We know only too well the hurt and grief they will have suffered. Lastly, Vicky was much more than a girl who was abducted and killed by a stranger, or the girl on a missing poster. Our sister was a warm, clever, generous girl who shared many happy years with us. We will always remember Vicky as she lived, not as she died. Peter Tobin was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 30 years. He was already serving 21 years for the murder of Angelica Kluke, but Tobin was facing another trial. After being charged with Dinah McNichols' murder in January 2008, Peter Tobin was brought to Chelmsford Crown Court in December 2009 to stand trial. Prosecutor William Clegg QC told the jury that Dinah had hitched a ride home from a festival and accepted a lift from a man in an old green car. It was the Crown's case that Peter Tobin was the driver of that vehicle and he had drugged, sexually assaulted and killed Dinah before burying her body in the back garden of his home in Margate. The jury were told that Tobin had been convicted of the murders of Angelica Kluke and Vicky Hamilton and had also served time for a violent sexual attack on two teenage girls in 1993. Dinah McNichols' body had been concealed in plastic bags just yards from Vicky Hamilton's remains. Tobin's fingerprints were found on the material. William Clegg QC told jurors, 
you may conclude that, although there is no evidence of rape in this case, the body was so decomposed that such evidence could have been lost. There is clearly a sexual motive behind the abduction and murder of Dinah. The prosecutor also highlighted that amitriptyline had been administered to the teenage girl's Tobin assaulted, to Vicky Hamilton, and there were traces of the drug found during Dinah McNichol's post-mortem. Clegg said, It would obviously be an aid to anyone seeking to abduct and keep captive someone against their will, and would lessen the ability of anyone to resist unwelcome sexual advances. It demonstrates a propensity to abduct young girls, administer amitriptyline, murder them and dump their bodies in rubbish sacks. There cannot be many people in this world who share those propensities. Dinah McNichol's bank account had been emptied following withdrawals made in Portsmouth, Brighton and Kent, all areas where Tobin was known to frequent. When he was interviewed following his arrest a year earlier, the defendant refused to answer detectives' questions in relation to Dinah's murder. Unsurprisingly, given the weight of evidence against him, after a short trial, Peter Tobin was found guilty. Before imposing a third life sentence, Mr Justice Calvert-Smith told Tobin, This is the third time you have stood in the dock for murder. On all three occasions, the evidence against you was overwhelming. Yet even now, you refuse to come to terms with your guilt. Dinah's father, Ian McNichol, spoke with reporters following the verdict and voiced his opinion about what should be done with Peter Tobin. He should be tortured to death. Jail is too good for him. It's no comfort to me that he will die in jail. I would like to put him on the outside so myself, Mr. Hamilton and Mr. Clue could get hold of him. So where are we now? After Peter Tobin was convicted and confirmed to be a serial killer, officers working on Operation Anagram continued investigating his background and potential links to other unsolved murders and disappearances. The nationwide probe pieced together information to try and determine where Tobin was at different times of his life and compare the locations with the crimes. In an interview with a prison psychologist before he was convicted of Vicky Hamilton's murder, Tobin allegedly claimed to have killed over 40 women. He told the interviewer to, quote, prove it. Killings he was linked to include the notorious Bible John murders of Helen Puttock, Jemima MacDonald and Patricia Docker, who were killed in Glasgow between 1968 and 1969, when Tobin was living in the area. He would have been in his mid-twenties. A typical trait among serial killers is trophy collecting, keeping a personal item from their victims. At the house in Bathgate where police found the knife containing Vicky Hamilton's DNA, investigators found rings, watches, bracelets and other jewellery. Malcolm Graham, head of Lothian and Borders CID, said, The finding of trophy items is common in such cases. Some of these pieces of jewellery could be key to solving other crimes. Another senior investigator told the Daily Record, Tobin is 62. He's had a long time to harm women. From what we know of him so far, he took every opportunity he could to satisfy the demons that drove him. 
there is every chance he will emerge as one of the nation's worst serial killers. Operation Anagram was scaled down in 2011, as Detective Superintendent David Swindle retired after three and a half decades of service with the Strathclyde Police. That means that there isn't a dedicated resource to it. But one thing that I'm at pains to point out is that Operation Anagram will always continue. For the last four and a half years, we have had so much response from the public. We have learned so much about how to uh, run an operation like this. Um, we have set up various communication networks using the, the web and the internet. And any new information that comes in regarding Peter Tobin or the recovery of human remains, which could be linked to Peter Tobin, will be acted on. So we have a system in place. So I'm confident that what we've done in the last four and a half years and what is in place will be there um, to, to, to answer any response from the public. Peter Tobin's crimes brought to light some disturbing claims about Father Jerry Nugent, who had been the parish priest at the time of Angelica Kluke's murder. Aside from being found in contempt of court for failing to give truthful answers while testifying at Tobin's trial, Nugent gave numerous interviews where he spoke about his struggles with alcohol and celibacy. In one exchange, he said, it takes two to tango, before adding, maybe some women find priests irresistible or a challenge, but it wasn't as if I was on the prowl or anything like that. Whenever I did sin, I went to my confessor, my priest. I confessed and tried to lift myself up. All through my life, I have struggled with my sexuality. I have had sexual relationships with women, and I have done what a Catholic does, and gone to confession. In a further development, Jerry Nugent was accused of molesting teenagers in a local park in March 2007. In response to the allegations which were never proven, the disgraced priest said, my lawyer told me not to say a word about it, but I can assure you I wasn't touching up any children in a park. I can put my hand on my heart, hand on my Bible and all the rest of it, but this is not true about me. I have to say I have never had any problem with children. I struggle with my sexuality, but not children, not at all. I have a weakness for women and I have admitted to that. But it's a very different thing when someone accuses you of touching up children. Jerry Nugent died in 2010, but eight years later, more child sexual abuse claims emerged that implied he had raped a teenage girl almost 40 years earlier. Following his trials, Peter Tobin's ex-wives came together and spoke about the abuse they had endured at his hands while they were married to him. Describing how her worst fears about her former partner were true, Tobin's first wife Margaret told reporter Jack Matheson in 2008, I'd hoped the Polish girl had been the first time he killed but in my heart I knew it wasn't likely. I've been trying to guess how much misery he's caused in his life. For all I know, when he left me alone for days at a time, coming in at all hours, he was hunting women then. It makes my flesh creep, but I suspect the cases we know about will prove to be the tip of the iceberg. I could easily have been his first victim 40 years ago. By the time I escaped, I knew I'd married a monster, but I didn't fully understand his capacity for evil. 
Margaret passed away in 2020 after being diagnosed with lung cancer. She had hoped to outlive Tobin. However, the disease progressed rapidly. In October 2022, Peter Tobin died after a long period spent handcuffed to a hospital bed. His ashes were scattered at sea, as reportedly no relatives came forward to claim his remains. The full extent of Tobin's crimes may never be known. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our patrons for supporting the podcast. This is the end of Season 7 of They Walk Among Us. In the meantime, we are not on a full break. We will be releasing a number of bonus episodes for the next month, until we return for Season 8 on Wednesday, July 26th. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.